Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, I want to welcome you this morning as we uh, come now to part of the service where we gather around the Word of God. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is going to be our focus for this morning as we pause in our series on John to look at a subject that is an urgent one, an urgent subject. Uh, One of the things that uh, was weighing heavily, as I shared with you last week, on me as I went to sabbatical, as I come back from sabbatical, is something that I've sensed present in and amongst our congregation. And the best way I can describe it is fear. Fear. Fear driven by change, rapid change, rapid changes taking place in our culture. And I would uh, be remiss if I didn't say to you, there are really four things on my heart as I've come back from sabbatical and I'm praying, literally praying for four kinds of people that God would raise up, four kinds of people in our congregation and for our congregation. I'm praying that God would raise up people of prayer. I'm praying that God would raise up people of passion, people who have a passion for the lost. I'm praying that God would raise up a people of faith, people who would choose literally again and again and again and again faith over fear, even in a culture and a cultural situation that is incredibly and increasingly threatening to the Christian faith. I'm praying for people of faith. I'm also praying that God would raise up people of peace, people who are open to the gospel, people who are hurting and ready to hear about the God who heals the broken, who sets free captives. They are out there. I don't know. I don't know what the ratio is in the United States. I'm jealous that our friend Carl knows the ratio in Great Britain. I don't know the ratio in the United States. How many people you have to invite to talk about the things of God? How many you have to invite before some will say yes? They are out there. Jesus said the fields are wide unto harvest. Go! The field's already. Go, 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 go. There are people who want to hear, need to hear, are ready to hear. If there were just someone to tell them. Four o'clock this afternoon, right here, four o'clock to 5.30. I look forward, I'm praying that there will be some people of passion or who want passion who will be here. I take you to a passage this morning because I want to focus as we begin this, this new series, this series on stewardship, one that I've, I've uh, entitled Stewardship in a Strange New World, How to Live Strong in a Culture that is Coming Apart. 
I, I bring you to a passage because I bring you to a place where I think we need to begin. And that is, I want to bring you to a place where we are reminded and refreshed of how God works in his people in times of crisis. There are many, many, many of us who are concerned about the spiritual well-being of our churches, of our families, of individual believers. There are many, many of us who are asking the question, what does it mean to live as a believer in this world that is now ours? How do we steward our relationships? How do we steward our kids? How do we steward our families? How do we steward our very selves in a world that has become so very strange, incoherent, and even disorienting? So I want to begin this series by going to the Old Testament, by looking at an Old Testament story and a psalm that explains it for us. And so with Psalm 34 open before us, well, let me give you a little bit of background before we dive in. The uh, title of this psalm, if you'll look at the top, the title of this psalm is, uh, lands the uh, psalm squarely in the story found in 1 Samuel 21. David is living in some troubled times. He's fleeing from a king, Saul, who is deranged, who is destroying the nation and out to destroy David out of jealousy. And in response, David looks for a place of refuge. He thinks he's found it with King Abimelech of Gath, a Philistine. He's given refuge by that king, but his refuge turns to detention. Instead of finding safety, David finds he's become a hostage with a price on his head. He's facing a crisis. His nation is facing a crisis. Things are upside down and sideways for him. For Samuel tells us that David fakes madness and by it secures his own escape. And if we only had 1 Samuel 11 to go by, we might assume that David got himself out of his crisis and out of his danger by being shrewd or by being smart. But here in, in Psalm 34, we have David's reflections on that event, and he says it isn't so. He says that when he was in a time of crisis and everything seemed to be falling apart for him, it was not his own smarts, it was not his own shrewdness that got him through it. Rather, David says, he sought the Lord, he called out to him, and it was the Lord who delivered him. He said, I know how I got out of the jam I was in. I cried out to the Lord and he delivered me. It wasn't my smart. It wasn't my shrewdness. It wasn't a plan that I could come up with. It was God. Let's take a look at what he has to say. Psalm 34, beginning of verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast, not in me, but in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him, they are the ones who are radiant or confident and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man, David says, speaking of himself, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord, in fact, I've learned, David says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, they have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. So come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Who doesn't is what he's saying. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, especially in times of crisis. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it, especially in times of crisis. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are toward their cry, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and he delivers them out of all their troubles, especially in times of crisis. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Listen, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned or destroyed. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those, I love this, don't you? None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned, will be destroyed. Now, Lord God, we uh, gather around your word this morning and we seek your help. We need, we want to hear from you. We need, we want to hear from you in these days and times in which we live. Lord God, I'm praying that you would increase our faith that you would help our unbelief. Lord God, I'm praying that you would replace retreat with faithfulness, that you would replace fear with faith. I'm asking, Lord God, that this day, today, you would begin, that you would help us to lay a foundation as we look carefully at all that is confronting us and all that we're confronting that you might in the end find us with our foundation stronger, our commitment deeper, our love for you greater. Lord God, this is what we're praying for. This is what we're seeking today. Grant us ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant us a sense of your presence with us today. Grant us a sense of your presence in your word. Give us the help of your Holy Spirit to hear all that you would say, not just to your church, but Father, to us as individuals. Grant, Lord God, that you would move by your spirit and that we would be given a better view of who we are and what is taking place around us. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right. So it's obvious for us. It's obvious for us, isn't it? that we're no longer living in the same world most of us have known. It feels as if things have changed and almost changed overnight. Our world in truth has become a very strange new world. It's strange in the sense that it's unsettling and that it can be very hard to understand. It's new in the sense that it's radically different from the world that came before. Everything seems to be coming apart. 
The new world is incredibly disorienting and can be very discouraging and not just for believers. I saw an extraordinary article in the Atlantic back in March and uh, Olga Kazan, who is not a believer, uh, progressive, all of those things, asked this question. She said, why is everybody now acting so weird? Have you met anybody acting weird lately? Is that all? All right, here's, here's the more important question. Have any of you acted weird lately? Yes, yes, I like honesty, that's good, that's good. Just please don't do that during this hour, okay? And maybe wait till later, but not right now. Why is everyone acting so weird? And, and her answer was, and this is interesting, her answer was it's COVID. Everything's explained by COVID. Well now, COVID can make you act crazy. There is such a thing as COVID crazy. I, I understand that. But the reality is there are some issues that go far beyond COVID. In fact, what COVID did more than anything was to expose issues that were already existent before it happened, before it hit. Socially, politically, globally, there seems to be an increasing amount of chaos and confusion and uncertainty. If it's not Ukraine, it's China firing missiles over Taiwan and trying to come to terms with all that's taking place and what that actually is going to mean for us, for our churches, for our children, for our families. Our world seems to be falling apart. And in some ways it actually is. So bad behavior of all kinds is becoming the norm from rudeness and carelessness to physical violence. We Americans are driving more recklessly, crashing more, killing pedestrians at higher rates than we have before. Airlines are seeing the highest rates of unruly passengers ever. Healthcare professionals across the nation are reporting that their patients are behaving more violently. I saw in Missouri that they were actually considering giving all of the nurses in Missouri panic buttons because patients were so unruly. It used to be you pressed your button to get a nurse. Now the nurse is pressing the button to get rid of you. <laughs> Schools are reporting an uptick in violence. The murder rate is up. Overdoses are up. Car thefts are up. But it isn't only our world, but also our culture that seems to be falling apart. Our culture shows signs everywhere of breaking down. We're seeing not only a social breakdown, but a moral breakdown and a loss of the meaning of life and all of its basic elements. As a culture, we're redefining what is good and what is evil. We're redefining family, redefining marriage, redefining gender, redefining sex. And we're deciding that personal identity based on, uh, is ultimately based on how we think or feel about ourselves. The result is a chaos and a confusion about nearly everything that touches the basics of life. And this not only makes life harder, but threatens to make living and flourishing impossible. The great English philosopher and historian Arnold Toynbee once said, civilizations aren't murdered, they commit suicide. They disintegrate from the inside out. And we are right now living through a critical moment 
in our history when it seems as if we are surely as a culture doing just that, committing suicide, all the while being told that we're really, uh, in reality, progressively making things better for ourselves and future generations. Our faith seems to be under constant and increasing attack. Christians aren't persecuted in America. We had a sister here this morning from from Myanmar. She can tell you about persecution. We are not persecuted, but the heat is on. The pressure is on. There's growing vocal opposition to our faith and to its practice. In many parts of the country and across the digital landscape, believers face skepticism and hostility. The culture is less and less for us and more and more against us even as it works against itself. And the situation is affecting us. It's beginning to affect our families. And now Christian parents who live and teach their families traditional views, biblical views of marriage, sex, and gender, views that have been held not for 100 years, not for 200 years, but for thousands of years, teaching the design of God for life find that their children receive their teaching with a great deal of question. They find it's hard for their children to hear or to understand because more and more those children are being taught and discipled by a culture that holds different values and different ideas of morality than those found in Scripture. There was always, there's always been a generation gap. My parents always thought I played my music too loud, They didn't like my hair was long. I actually had hair. (laughs) See, this is what you did to me. That's just all I've got to say. It used to be about fashion. It used to be about music. The generation gap, it is not about any of those things anymore. Those are easy now. The challenge is real. Confusion and conflict and alienation and anger and broken hearts all can be the result. And so there are a lot of people who are asking the question, a lot of believers that are asking the question. Not just, not just the Atlantic. There are a lot of people who are asking the question, where are we going? But believers in particular are saying, what can we do? What should we do? How do we live faithfully in such a moment as this? And there's almost, and I feel it, there's almost a palpable struggle between faith and fear, between trust in God and fear of what's happening in our society, fear of the chaos, fear of the confusion, fear of the conflicting values. And the real temptation in the midst of that fear is to flee. It is to run away. It is to abandon the culture and hide out somewhere. And I just have to say quickly, I am so glad that in the midst of my own sin and sinfulness and our own brokenness, God did not flee. Jesus came. He came. He didn't run, he came. And I'm so grateful for that. And every believer in this room is grateful for that because the question, of course, is where would we be without him? And the answer is we would be broken. Is that not the answer? We would be broken. Would we not be broken? We would still be lost and trapped in our sin. We would have no hope for tomorrow. Isn't that the case? 
okay, y'all are going to be hard to work with. Don't make me come down here. It drives the camera people crazy when I come down. It just, it's a problem. Uh, the staff will want to meet with me on Monday. Uh, it, he came. We can't hide because he came. We're not hiders, we're goers. You can quote me on that. That's pretty good. We're not hiders. I don't know how you spell all that, but yeah. I don't think hider is a word. But there's this palpable feeling of tension between faith and fear. Whether you're 10th grade at West or you've just got your new, a new baby at home, or whether you just sent your last kid off to college, it is there, it is there, it is there. And it cannot be denied. So what do we do? What do we do? I think there's some bigger questions that we need to ask though. Will our faith fall apart along with everything else? I think is, is an important question. How will we face and handle this strange new world? Will we face this with faith in God and, and then with faithfulness to him? Or will we move to fear and retreat? If we're going to choose faith and faithfulness, there are a couple of things we're going to, we need to do. And I'm praying that we will do this. When I answer the call to become your pastor, I, I answered the call to become a help to you to speak to you words of life, to speak to you words of encouragement, to speak to you words of challenge. These, these next messages, they matter, they matter. I feel as if I am pleading for the life of your children. I feel as if I'm pleading for the life of your family. I feel as if I'm pleading for the life of this church. And I feel as if I'm pleading for the lives of lost men and women who have yet to hear the gospel, to even have a chance to be set free of sin and find hope in the world that is as dark and confusing for them as it is for you and for me. I'm pleading. I'm pleading for faith. I'm pleading for faithfulness. I don't like to preach against too many things. I'd rather preach for Jesus than against things. But I will preach against fear and I will preach against fleeing. I want us to be a people of faith and faithfulness. How, how, how do we do it? If, if we're going to do it, how do we do it? First, we need some help in handling hard times as believers. I think we need some instruction. And I want to do a little of that today. But we need also to return to the basic questions of why we're here and what God wants of us at times, at all times, and especially in times like this. And then we need to begin asking and answering the questions, how should we live in this strange new world as a family? How should we live in this strange new world in, in, in our relationships in the community? How should we live in this strange new world with, with all things digital? How shall we now live? Some portions of human history are more confusing, disorienting, and dangerous than others. Life has always had crises 
And our psalm for the morning doesn't review every situation that life can bring us, but what it does do is show us what the faithful can do when they find themselves in their own time of crisis. That's why I bring you here. Now, let's look together at Psalm 34, shall we? Are you ready? Good. Are the rest of you ready? Good. And how about everybody? Are you ready? Yes, good. I know you are. Good. I see smiles. That's good. I see some Bibles. I see some smartphones. No candy crush. All right, let's take a look at this. Now, when you look at Psalm 34, what you find is the psalm is broken into two parts. In verses one to 10, you find David, he's unpacking lessons that he learned from his crisis. In verses 11 to 22, we, we find him sharing some secrets that he learned as well. Now, I know from personal experience, uh, aka last service, I'm only gonna get through the first half. So, but it's good. It's worth waiting for, so here we go. Let's take a look. I want you to see there are three practices David points us to that says, look, crises are coming and the best way to go through a crisis or to live through a crisis or a hard time or a difficult time is to already be practiced in three specific areas of life. I wanna show them to you. There are three things you need to know, to be able to know to do now so that when your crisis, whatever it is, your personal crisis or a larger cultural crisis, when it comes, you will be ready. What are they? Well, let's look. There are, and there's gonna sound obvious to some of you, and some of these will sound like, what? Either way, I want you to listen as I unpack them. Here they are. Three things we need to practice that will equip us for the crises of life. Number one is the practice of praise. Number two is the practice of prayer. And number three is the practice of the presence of God. Want me to give those to you again? All right, good. Here we go. The practice of praise, the practice of prayer, and the practice of the presence of God. Let me unpack those for you. Look with me, first of all, at verses one through three. If we're going to make it through uh, the crises of life with faith and faithfulness, the first thing that we must know how to practice is praise. I love this, verses one through three. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, come on, join me, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. At all times, David is saying, even when you're afflicted, when you have troubles of all kinds, at the, when you're at the bottom with nowhere to look up, the very best response always is to bless the Lord or to acknowledge the glories which make him who he is and make him worth trusting. Here is one of the great skills, one of the great habits, one of the great practices of the people of God down through the ages. Those who have been faithful have known how to praise God in the highs and in the lows before the highs got really high or the lows got really low. I love something the Lord is teaching my wife and honey, I did not ask for permission for this, but I'm doing it anyway. We can talk about it later. She's been, she's been pressing into the Lord of late. And one of the things she said to me, it was, and it just ministered to my heart. She said, you know, Steve, whenever anything starts going south, whenever anything starts going wrong, she said, the Lord is teaching me right now simply to say every time it, it, that it hits, whatever it is, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. 
This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Do you see what she's doing? She's practicing the fine art of praise, which is always, now don't miss this, an expression of confidence and trust in God. I trust you. So when the breaker goes out in our house and she can't fix supper, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I've got to tell you, if I don't get supper, that becomes a real challenge for me. Can I have a witness? Yeah, I thought so. But I love that. I love what the Lord is teaching her. It's a beautiful thing because here's what I know. I'm just going to be frank. I'm just going to be honest with you. Cheryl and I are going to face a major crisis at some point. We may face it with you in this culture. We may face it personally with one of our kids or whatever. We may face, we will. I mean, the crises come in life. There's no getting around it. They come. But if my bride keeps practicing praise in the high times and the low times, then she will be strong when the low times become incredibly low. Because in that practice, she's learning where her strength comes from, where her confidence should be, where her hope should come from. This is a very intentional kind of thing, this practice of praise. He is worth trusting. To bless him is to boast in him here. This blessing the Lord, it's boasting in him, it's living committed to praising God in all of life. This has got to be the greatest expression of trust in him for all of life. Here's a little secret I want to tell you. You will not learn to praise him if you wait till you hit your highest heights or your, your deepest depths. You won't do it. That's the wrong time to start learning. Your highest height will overwhelm you and you'll think you did it yourself. Your lowest low will overwhelm you and you think God has abandoned you. Listen, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you this is the way it is. You've got to start now. So if you, if you come out today and you go to your car and your car won't start, here's what I want you to say. Today is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. If you walk in tomorrow and they say you no longer have a job, will you be ready? I walked with a family who lost a 30-year-old son within the last two weeks. I watched them at the lowest of lows and great anguish of their hearts and their soul. But I also watched the most extraordinary thing. I watch them praise the Lord. Have you got that kind of practice down in your life? Don't tell me it can't happen. I, I just saw it last week. 
And it's an incredible thing to witness. Oh, see, loved ones, it's in the everyday that we learn to praise him by practice before these other things come. One of the great principles that we take from David is learn as you live your life to turn your problems into praise before you do anything else with them. Number two, there's something else that must be practiced. David says, look at verses four to six, prayer for help must be practiced. He says, in this crisis, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look, here's what I found, those who look to him in times of crisis are radiant. They come to be confident and their faces are never ashamed. I love that. This poor man, David says, speaking of himself, this mighty warrior, this brilliant man, this extraordinary leader, one of the greatest leaders of all time, calls himself a poor man. He said, I was in a crisis, and here's the reality. This poor man, me, cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. This is perhaps the greatest confession David makes. His escape from crisis had nothing to do with him, but had everything to do with the God to whom he cried out, the God who delivered him. Like so many others, David says, looking to God for help left him, I love this, left him radiant, left him unashamed. The lesson learned is that those who pray for help in the end, they find that there is a confidence they come away with. They find that they're never ashamed. They never regret. They're never disappointed by the choice of looking to the Lord first instead of themselves. There is not a person who has ever cried out to God and, and, and laid it out before him, whoever came later to say, oh, I wish I hadn't prayed. I, I just wish I'd have done it myself. If you've genuinely cried out to God, let me tell you, one way or another, God will deliver you. Our God delivers. Now, let me give you a word of caution. Can I give you a word of caution? I got four people. That's enough. That's a quorum. We're close. Now I forgot my point. What was I going to say? What's that? Word of caution. I love it when you listen. It blesses my heart. Now, if I could just remember what the word, oh, here's the word of caution. My mind's going 200 miles an hour. You, you try doing this. It's not easy, is it, Carl? It's not easy. Okay, see? All right. Oh, word of caution. Yes, I better get this out before I lose it. Here's the word of caution, seriously. Cry out to him. He will deliver you. Just do not expect that his deliverance will be of your choosing. Do not box a sovereign God in as if he must deliver you in the way you think is best. He's God, you're not. He's wise, you're not. Do not prescribe for God what he must do. Tell God you need his help. You see, if uh, praise is the ultimate expression of trust, Prayer is the ultimate expression of dependence. 
Only those people who know they are poor men and poor women. Yeah, you've got gifts, you've got abilities. I, I understand all that. But in the end, when it comes to the crises of life, you're poor. I'm poor. We're poor. Only those who genuinely know they're poor, that they can't, they're the ones who pray. So when I'm praying for people of prayer to rise up in our church, I'm praying for poor people to rise up in the church. People who can say legitimately, honestly, I know I have limits. I know I'm not enough for this life. I know. I know. Those who pray are those who are the most dependent upon God in their crises, large and small. Anyone else who's a follower of Jesus who doesn't have a consistent prayer life ultimately is saying to God, I got this and I'll let you know when I don't. Okay, can I quote myself? Okay. You don't got this. I said that, I don't know, a couple years ago. I'm quoting it again. It's not hard to forget. Sometimes it's hard to believe. You don't have this. You need him. And the proof that you know that you need him is your prayer life. The proof that you know that you need him is your prayer life. This practice of prayer is a beautiful thing because it does leave you radiant and unashamed because he delivers. He just does. I have seen God work time and again in my life. And I can say with David, he delivers. There's a radiance, there's a joy. The only time I've really been ashamed in a crisis is when I depended on myself and I didn't turn to him. He'll come. He will move. He will work. Very often you will see it eventually. Not always, though. There will be some things that God does and we'll think maybe to the end of our lives. I prayed and I prayed. A person of faith will say... I wonder what God did. I can't wait to find out on the other side. But a person with small faith will go, why didn't God show up? Why did he fail me? Why did he let me down? Why did this happen? How did this happen? He delivers. Turn to your neighbor and say, he delivers. Okay, you better tell the other neighbor too. He He delivers. Yeah. Try one more time. He delivers. That's good. That's a lot better because he does. Now, thirdly, I want you to see with me a third practice. After turning your problems into prayer and turning your problems into praise, I want you to see with me the, the, the practice of the presence of God and its importance. He says in verses 7 to 10, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, David is speaking here from his own personal experience, of course, but the reason why he's able to praise God and the reason why he's able to seek him and the reason why he's able to encourage us with his own testimony is bound up in one unchanging truth about God. God is ever present to those who fear him. God is ever present to those who fear him. He delivers those who fear him and he delivers those who fear him with what I would call a worship fear rather than a terror fear. This is important and I want you to see this. When you are in a crisis, you will feel a terror fear. It is a, it is a feeling of hopelessness, of helplessness. Have you felt that? A terror fear. You will have a terror fear. What David is calling for here is that we replace our terror fear of what has happened or of what others are doing to us with a worship fear of Almighty God. When I fear Him, when I have a worship fear of God, that means I'm living in reverence for Him. I'm living in awe of him. I'm living mindful of his glory and his power. I'm choosing then to look at my crisis through the lens of who God is in his glory, rather than looking at this problem through the lens of fear and what might happen, what man might do to me, what others might do to me, I make that decision. I switch the lens. And it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. He is a God who is ever present to those who fear him. And when I switch that lens, then I have the confidence. Look at verse seven. The scripture says, the, the angel of the Lord encamps around God's people. This is a phrase, the angel of the Lord is, is a phrase that's often used in the Old Testament to refer to the Lord himself. Whenever he came to show himself to his people, and he wanted to give them a visual demonstration of his presence, the angel of the Lord would come. Of course, Jesus was far better than that angel of the Lord. The scripture says when we see him, we see the Father as he really is. But what this means is that David's testimony can be anybody's testimony because this angel encamps around those who fear him. This angel, God himself, his presence lives wherever God and is active, wherever God's people are as they live out their lives. And the result is that David has learned to live practicing the presence of God. Now that may seem odd at first, but to practice the presence of God is to live aware of his constant presence in all the details and all the situations of life and to seek to deliver deliberately honor him in the midst of the details. And so that means that in every area, in every aspect of my life, I should be believing two things and doing three things. Here they are. I should be believing if I am walking in reverence before God, I should be walking, believing that he's present when that breaker breaks and supper isn't happening, that he is 
present when I get that pink slip, when he, that he is present when my children disappoint me, that he is present when my parents disappoint me, that he's present when I find that I have financial hardships I didn't expect. When, when I'm practicing the presence of God, I am looking into the details of my life, trusting that God is in it and can overcome it which is the second belief. Not only is he in all of my life, but that he is good. No matter what happens, what comes storming into my life, those who do well in crises are absolutely convinced that he is present and that he is absolutely good. And that then enables them to do three things. It enables them, number one, to look for him in all situations. Because God is always present and his good is always present with him. Believers can live looking for him. And this is what he's getting at in verse 8a. He says, taste and see the goodness of this ever-present God everywhere you are. Everything you're going through, taste and see. Taste and see, I dare you, taste and see. Practicing the presence of God not only involves looking for him, it, it, it involves going to him in all situations as your only true, safe, reliable place. Look at the end of verse eight. He's ever present. You can take your refuge in him. You can run to him. I don't know how many times in the course of my ministry I've looked at people in times of crisis, in times of hardship, and I think this more often than not is the single most important piece of advice or direction I can give a believer in a crisis. Simply this. I tell them, lean in. Don't lean away. Lean into Jesus. Don't lean away. One of the great temptations when a crisis comes crashing into your life, particularly if you have not practiced his presence, is to say God has somehow abandoned me and to lean away from him as if you cannot trust him, as if you cannot have confidence in him. It is one of the most dangerous mistakes a believer can make is to lean away from Christ in a crisis instead of leaning into him. Lean in. David says, here's what I found in the midst of my crisis. He is a refuge. There literally is nowhere else to go in a crisis. Lean in. Don't lean out. Lean in. He's the only true, safe, reliable place. Finally, practicing the presence of God involves resting in him as your only true, reliable source of what you need. I love this. He who is ever present for those who fear him is also all sufficient, David says in verses 9 and 10. What you need, he'll provide. Look to him. Go to him. Rest in him. He will not fail you. So here are three habits that equip believers for the crises of life the practice of praise or blessing the Lord is one that shows and promotes confidence in him. The practice of prayer or seeking the Lord is one that promotes dependence on him. The practice of the presence of the Lord is one that promotes an awareness of him in all of life. And it is these three habits practiced in the little highs and the little lows that finally get you through the big ones.
without these things, without confidence, without dependence, without awareness, no believer can begin to face crises well. No believer will be ready. No believer will be prepared. I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. I am praying that God would raise up a people of great faith and not of fear. We must not run. We must not dumb down our witness. We must stand, we must stand strong. We must be like Jesus, full of grace and full of truth in a culture that increasingly disregards grace and hates truth. But I want to give you a word of encouragement today. As I said at the beginning, the question we got to answer is whether we will choose faith and faithfulness over fear It is a question as to whether we will choose again and again to do that one thing that the Apostle Paul determined he would do, and that is to press on, to endure the present, to move forward with our eyes on the one who will bring all of history to a close, the close that he's chosen for it. As I was finishing my study of this psalm, I remembered... Acts 13, 36, Paul said something interesting about David. He says, just almost as an aside, he says that David fulfilled his purposes, God's purposes in his generation, and then he died. It struck me. It made the passage even more powerful for me. (laughs) And so I want to leave you with this word. We have a decision to make, but, but can I say to you, sovereign God of the universe who knows all things who knows every culture shift that will come every movement of nations every action and activity of men and women here's the reality he put you and me in this cultural moment for a reason. This is our time. David had his time. This is our time. God put us in 2022 to bring him glory. God put us here in an upside down, topsy-turvy world so that we might, with faith and faithfulness, shine for his glory. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. God knows where he's going. He's already set the finish line. You and I are simply called to follow a faithful God. That's all we're called to do. Follow a faithful God. Yes, things are confusing. Yes, things are hard. Yes, things are sideways. But God is never sideways. 
God never changes. His love will not be moved. His compassion for us will not be changed. His desire for us to be where he is will not be altered. The day is going to come when Jesus will reign and the sovereignty and the rule of God over all things will be obvious to every creature under heaven. That day is coming. And those who keep that truth deep in their hearts will make their way through this cultural moment. Yes, we might have some stripes. Yes, we might have some pain. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul told Timothy, I think that includes me. But there is not one moment of hardship or suffering that will not fade into oblivion on the day when Jesus comes again. No hardship, (laughs) no difficulty, no evil act or evil deed will linger long in our minds or in our memories when Jesus comes back for his people. Stand. Stay strong. Be faithful. Father God, in this place, I'm grateful, Lord, And we are able to celebrate, to talk about, to proclaim, to announce such a God as you. Oh, Lord God, together today we pray that you would raise up, that you would raise up a people who know how to pray who now know how to walk in utter dependence on you. Oh, Father, raise up a people of passion who in a world that is sick and broken and hurting, a people who are unafraid to go, who refuse to retreat, who are ready able and willing to give a reason for the hope that they have, who are ready, able, willing to share the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. I'm praying, Lord God, that you would raise up a people of firm, strong faith who will have nothing to do with fear. And I'm praying, Lord God, in this hurting world that you will show us the people of peace who right this very minute are ready to begin the journey of finding Jesus whose hearts are hungry who know that something deep is missing that this world is ultimately unsatisfying who know in their heart of hearts there must be something indeed someone more 
Oh, Lord God, that we would be a people ready to see them, ready to say say to them, the one you're looking for is Jesus. Father, I want to pray right now for those people in in the room who today need desperately to hear how much you love them. Who desperately need to know the great lengths to which you've gone for them to be healed, made whole. Oh Lord God, how thankful we are that you sent your son to live that perfect life that none of us could live. To live that life in our place. How thankful we are, Lord God, that he died at the death of a substitute taking our place so that the penalty of death for sin might be paid for us and we might in turn live. How thankful we are, Lord God, that when we repent and turn to you in faith, you grant forgiveness. You give us a new life like Christ. And we come to have eternal life rather than being separated for eternity from all that is good. You gather us up to yourself to spend eternity with the one who is good. God, for those here today who need that Savior, my prayer is that you would move in their hearts to say no to their sin and themselves and yes to this Jesus. For those who aren't sure of their relationship with you, today, I pray, would be the day when they would say, I need to know where I stand. Make today the day, Lord God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.